Father in heaven, I pray that as we study together um, the scripture and uh, seek to understand the uh, message for us as health professionals, I pray that you'll guide our minds, that your Holy Spirit will be here, and that you'll give um, your servant, Dr. Matthews, a special grace to share. In Christ's name we pray, mm. amen. Amen. Thank you, Phil. Um, I made a bold and brave decision here. Since uh, Elder Finley did not wear a tie, I thought I would take my tie off. So <laughs> I, I think I'll be okay in that respect. And my <coughs> book on the trumpets is necessarily delayed because we're trying to complete a revelation quarterly for my Bible first, interestingly enough. <laughs> so, uh, to boil things down into three 600-word essays per chapter is quite a feat all by itself. But uh, anyway, I believe we're being recorded, so now is the time to start. Um, this is actually my first time I'm hand those in, to be at the Amen conference. Seems like I always have some other obligations, but um, Phil asked me to give a talk. I was willing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this is not a how-to session of evangelism. I believe the question, are you willing, sort of begs the question. That's why most people are here, because they have been willing, and they have been following the Lord's will as best they know to spread the gospel and the good news. I was asked to get all of this information in for CME credit, and this was painful two or three months ago trying to figure out what I'm going to say today, but it ended up okay. Uh, I typically will put stuff down in writing, and this way we don't have to look at slides, and you can take it home and use it. Uh, you don't have to write so many notes. Um, it became apparent to me as I began to look at what a willing mind and heart and the force of the will, uh, it became apparent to me that we're dealing with a big mystery. How, when God breathed into the nostrils of man and he became a living soul or being, something began to happen in there. Some of us are unfortunate enough to be at the end of some people's lives when they die from disease and others, and that stare it just goes vacant. There's nothing in there. My dear mother with Alzheimer's and sub-basilar ganglion strokes and I'll go there one week and she's doing so well and she knows who I am and asks me what I'm doing the next week. There's just nothing there. I mean, I don't know if she's going through. So anyway, we're looking at a mystery and I'm reminded of 
my stint in Egyptian archaeology with the Ba, the Ka, the soul, the spirit, this mummified body which is put in the pyramids were called resurrection machines. And the point of the pyramid was with the mummified Pharaoh in there to, as he ascended up into pharaonic heaven, that his Ba and his Ka, spirit, soul, and they had another name there, all came back together in the afterlife. So lots of mystery here. Uh, Satan has determined to be as mysterious, if not more, than God in dealing with the human race. And uh, we, we're going to find out some very interesting things as we look at the theological and philosophical roots behind this notion of willing heart, mind, and the joy of obedience. So uh, we have to start somewhere with the building blocks. So we're going to start with the heart first. Have you ever told your spouse, I love you with all my mind? She goes, what? <laughs> um, it's usually I love you with all my heart. And that leads us to the first great mystery is what's in the heart. It's, it's more than just a muscle, mostly involuntary, that's beating and pumping blood around in the circulation. What is the heart? The emotions, the desires, uh, evil, good thoughts. What's in there? The heart is mentioned over 300 times and it's not talking in general about the literal heart in these passages. So we want to look. Um, we have a heart because God also has a heart. Now, I don't believe it's a literal heart, but he, we are reminded here, David was a man after God's own heart. So there was something about David that was akin to what God was like. So um, God blesses his people with leaders who know and follow his heart. Um, the human heart, though, in Jeremiah 17 is deceitful, treacherous, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Um, we're talking here about general and special revelation in the philosophical world, in the postmodern world, uh, there is no intervention or divine connection between whoever's up there for these people and us down here, and that we are all arbiters of our own fate. And if you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make a fortune, then good for you, but has nothing to do with anything above this direction or of course, there's probably no Satan either. So we're looking, based on special inspiration of Scripture, to deal with these great questions that are uh, posed to us. Um, in other words, the fall has affected us at the deepest level. Our minds, emotions, and desires have been tainted by sin, and we are blind to just how pervasive the problem is. This is... Uh, I take some comfort in the fact that the book of Revelation and also the Spirit of Prophecy says Seventh-day Adventists are indeed the Laodicean church. 
we should understand that and have a wake-up call that all ten virgins are sleeping in the parable and who has the oil is the key question but uh, if the heart is right we're going to have the extra oil so we may not understand our hearts but God does he knows the secrets of the heart he knew all men and he didn't based on his knowledge of the heart God can judge righteously he says I search the heart I test the mind notice the mind is being introduced and we'll be looking at that next even to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his doings you notice that they're in these texts about the mind the heart and the condition of it one way or another there's always a positive and a negative reward it's, it's very interesting as you look down through biblical history there's blessings for obedience there's cursings for disobedience when you are rebellious you receive judgments when you're obedient you receive blessings if not in this life certainly in the life to come so there's always uh, a condition there um, otherwise we could just all sit here and oh my will is good I love Jesus and that's all it is and we're good um, so there is something else that's going on now if you look on page two the fallen condition of our hearts is at least as serious as the Laodicean church or the people of Isaiah 1 from within out of men's hearts come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery greed malice deceit lewdness envy arrogance all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean Jesus said it's not what's on the outside so um, in that case according to scripture the heart must be changed and this only happens by the power of God in response to faith with the heart one believes unto righteousness and in his grace God can create a new heart within us you know David's repentance is so amazing because he said create in me a clean heart O God he needed a clean heart after his issue with Bathsheba and Uriah he knew he was in terrible trouble it's like the guy who was in jail for some thievery and the minister came to visit him and the man was just sitting on his bunk crying his eyes out oh I'm sorry I sneezed I'm sorry I sneezed and he just couldn't get over I'm sorry I sneezed and the pastor said well why are you sorry you sneezed he says well we were stealing chickens at night and I sneezed and they heard us and they caught us so so he was not sorry for what he had done but he was sorry because he had got caught so um, David it was thoroughgoing and complete repentance um, notice a couple of statements here from amazing grace in the beginning man was created in the image of God he was in perfect harmony with the nature and law of God the principles of righteousness were written on his heart but sin alienated him from his maker he no longer reflected the divine image his heart was at war with the principles of God's law but you know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
Through the merits of Christ, he can be restored to harmony with his maker. Notice the bold. His heart must be renewed by divine grace. You must have a new life from above. This change is the new birth. So we learn from inspiration in Scripture that this wicked, deceitful, evil heart from which all of this terrible stuff comes out can be fixed. And they, God does not do a patch. Okay, it's not like an ASD or a VSD in there where they go in now with um, all kinds of equipment. They don't have to cut open the chest. They can put patches on the atrial septal defect, ventricular septal but he gives us a new heart. So that is, that is really good news. In the new birth, the heart is brought into harmony with God and is brought in to accord with his law. The followers of Christ are to become like him by the grace of God to form characters in harmony with the principles of his law. So what part does the mind and the heart play? Um, David in Psalm 40 says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. So there are all kinds of metaphorical surgical maneuvers being performed here by God himself. First, he created us, breathed into man's nostrils, the breath of life, he became this living being. After the fall, he now needs to create in us a new heart so that what springs up out of the emotions of the soul is something good. And we're going to look at these relationships. I mean, I don't know if you go around worrying about is my mind and my heart okay and is that affecting my soul or whatever, but the Bible is very clear that these things do happen and that we need to understand the relationship between them because there is a clear relationship as we get towards the end. All right. Notice this text in Proverbs 23, 7, down at the bottom of page 2. Many thoughts. Uh, we find that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. How do you think in your heart? I mean, why, why didn't the psalmist say as a man thinketh in his mind, so is he? Apparently there's something deeper than the mind, I do believe, as we're going to see momentarily. But our thoughts are to be strictly guarded for one impure thought makes a deep impression on the soul. Today's society and postmodern culture, anything comes in. There is no pre-screening, no filtering. It's just whatever's coming is wonderful. Let's have a good time. And notice it says down here, as one drop of rain prepares the way for another in moistening the earth, so one good thought prepares the way for another. And for that matter, one bad thought prepares the way for another. So, how to, speaking of home evangelism, how to teach our children, most of us, it looks like already we've done taught them as good as we're going to teach them. But how, teaching your children that as one good drop of rain falls, another one's going to help moisten, or if a bad drop comes down. It's, it's very, very dangerous. So there's two choices emerging here, a desperately wicked heart, listening to only bad thoughts and input from the mind. I'm suggesting that now. A new heart dwells on pure thoughts and wholesome things, also 
inputted from the mind. Now, let's move on to this other part of the equation, the mind. I would suggest to you that there are five avenues to the soul. And if you haven't looked there, what are they? <laughs> it's the five senses. I think Leslie Harding is correct. There's only been five ways to sin and since Adam and Eve all the way down to the, I mean, you can only get input into your mind through the five senses. Mm -hmm. Now, what begins to happen in there with those thoughts when they, and pictures and ideas when they go in there is also the subject we're going to talk about. But um, somehow or another, these thoughts and these, these senses affect the mind, and then the mind has to do something with them. And we're going to see what that is momentarily. So notice there, about the third paragraph down, with respect to the flood. God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now his heart was having thoughts again. <laughs> um, but whatever man was doing since the fall, since Adam and Eve had been put out of the garden and things began to deteriorate and we know from the spirit of prophecy and its illumination that things were in truly terrible because men were long-lived, amazing memories, gold, silver, everything was on the ground. They built huge homes. There was no vice that was not practiced every imagination of the thought. So something had to get into their mind for them to begin this imagination process, okay? And the mind uncontrolled is going to come up with unspeakable horrors as we've noted throughout history. And as James puts it, here's the sequence. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So here is the mechanism by which things come in. Temptation, is it a sin? No, it'd be in a bad way. But if you linger, I mean, when David looked over the wall and saw Bathsheba, well... If his forebrain was in charge of his hindbrain, he should have walked away. <laughs> but we're going to talk about what makes David want Bathsheba here. Just hang on to that thought. But this, this sequence, when this sequence begins, it is only by the grace of God that it is able to be broken and pulled out of before it bringeth forth death. Notice Proverbs. Solomon learned a lot. The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination, which is another word for disgusting. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind. So the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The mind is wicked. Now, those two are split apart for some reason. We've got to figure out why that is, okay? 
Um, and maybe it's going to show us here. I've got some really neat quotes, certainly not from me, but some really neat quotes that put it together at the end, so hang on. Now, let's go think of Eli, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were bad sons of a good father, weren't they? Much like Nadab and Abihu some hundred years or two before. They were so bad that, of course, God predicted what would happen to them. And then he gave Eli a prophecy. When God gave Eli the prophecy against his own house, he said, I will raise up me a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. So I think he's talking about Samuel there at the very least. And possibly, of course, um, could be Jesus as you look at it antitypically. But who, which is in mine heart and in my mind. What kind of a person would be in the mind and the heart of God. I mean, that, that would be an incredible place to be. And we're going to find out how that's possible as we get on. You notice we go on to Solomon. The Lord instructed Solomon in First Chronicles 28, 9. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, David. And so the, I mean, he's talking about God of heaven, father, David. And serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. Now, that would be interesting to know how those two, they're obviously complementary, but in what way? A, a perfect heart and a willing mind. Could it be that it's a different way of saying the same thing? I don't know. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understand all the imaginations of the thought. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee, but if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. You notice the the dual reward there again. And of course, we remember the famous story in Nebuchadnezzar of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 5.20. He was walking along the wall of Babylon enough to get four chariots across at the same time, according to Herodotus. And he says, Is not this great Babylon I have built? And he was not ignorant of the God of heaven because he had encountered God personally in the fire and through Daniel, the burning fiery furnace through Daniel and his three friends. But when his heart was lifted up, there's the heart, and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. So his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride. Now hang on to these ideas because we're going to look at how they relate to each other in just a moment. To be frank, in actual life, you don't think of this relationship at all. Do you? I don't think you do. You're just going through life and you see things. Your eyes, your senses tell your mind what to do. Your heart responds and you make a choice. Okay. But we're looking a little deeper than that. The mind is carnal or wicked. The word is in the Greek is sarks or fleshly mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law. So the mind has some real problems just like the heart. Jesus made a famous statement in Matthew 22 talking to the crowd. I believe they had asked him what was the greatest commandment. And he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy 
heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And I stuck soul in there just for fun, I guess. We've just been talking about the heart and the mind, and now it's the soul. Now, how is the soul made? Body plus breath equals a living soul. And the reverse, when the person dies, the breath goes back to God who gave it, and the body returns to the dust of the earth. That in itself, on the state of the dead, is a huge issue that Satan uses to derail people's thinking about that. Well, if I don't make it in this life, I'll make it as a beetle or something next. People, they, they laugh about it, but that's what they think. So, with all thy heart, thy soul, and thy mind. But the good news in Romans 12, 2 is we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So, in essence, we need a heart transplant and a mind transformation. So, there, there's something very important going on here. And we don't want to forget Hebrews 8:10. I will speak about our dear brother Norman McNulty since he's not here. I do listen to him a lot and thank the Lord for his ministry. Uh, but this is one of his key favorite texts, and there are several like it. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. So it apparently is necessary to have the law in the mind and the heart. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. So we need a heart transplant and we need a transformation of the mind. Okay, we're getting... You remember... The theme of the conference, for those of you on audio verse, it's called, Are You Willing? So we're now, we've gone through the, what the issues are with the mind and the heart. What about the will? This is something totally intangible. There is nothing you can feel. You can't go home and take your will out and look at it. It's, it's just... It's this intangible thing, but it is a huge thing. All right. Human beings have a will. I would suggest to you the heart and the mind appear to give direction to the will. I mean, you can't act on something, although some people do without any mind. They act on things. But typically, the mind and the heart develop a plan, and the will is the active force that acts on it. What good is a will that's inactive? It's, it's, it's not. I mean, it's just, I don't think you can call it the will. Even if it's an inactive will and you refuse to do something, the fact that you've done nothing is probably against what you were feeling you should do. So... The will is the vital core of the mind-heart of humankind and cannot be dismissed as inconsequential. Now, let's define the will a little bit. If you notice at the bottom of page 4, the power of control the mind has over its own actions. The power of control the mind has over its own actions. Do you see how... It's beginning to emerge. Our senses detect something. The images or the ideas, the thoughts come into our mind. And then the power of control the mind has, then the mind 
consults the heart, which is the deepest emotions. Hopefully it's a wellspring of good and not evil. And then the will, you, the mind makes the choice and the will acts. Now, this is a little artificial, but we'll pull it together at the end. Hold on. <laughs> I don't claim to understand all of it, but it's been a wonderful exercise for my own soul to realize what I needed to do. So, the will must be exercised. You've heard of the strong-willed child. And I have to add in, have you ever thought about what, what the officer said when it means to fire at will? Who is will? <laughs> I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> against your will. Have you ever done something against your will? I mean, we use these phrases and terms all the time, do we not? But until I started thinking about it, it was... In religious context, there is a denomination called Free Will Baptist. And you know, in, in studying this, I work in jails, and people think I do jail ministry. Well, it is sort of, but it's mostly medical work because it's on a, uh, it's on a basis of just the, the problem-oriented basis, and you've got to keep moving. And once in a while, I can talk to some inmate, but... I have had more good times spiritually with nursing staff and officers. And in this week alone, in studying this, I was able to share this with two nurses. And I, I told my nurse in Greene County, well, I'm going down to South Carolina to do a presentation. She says, oh, what's your presentation? And she sat there and listened to a 10-minute version of it. And she's a very strong Baptist lady, but she seemed to be very pleased, understanding what was going on. So uh, I just thank the Lord that I had a chance to talk about this. So there's two things in this postmodern world about the will that are important that impinge upon people whether they think so or not. For many in under D, for many philosophers to believe in free will is to believe that human beings can be the authors of their own actions and to reject the idea that human actions are determined by external conditions or fate. Now that's postmodern thinking, that's rationalism or humanism, depending on which 17th century philosophy you want to look at, and it's probably some of both. So what this is saying is my free will is so free that nobody, God, Satan, or anybody impinges on it, and my own fate is up to me. And that's truly a sad state for the human mind and heart to be in. That's truly a sad state. I noticed in researching this that a number of religions, especially the ones into mysticism, consider the will the divine spark or the divine thing in you that controls your destiny and you just simply respond to your destiny and you become a god yourself. I mean, you're divine. I mean, it's, this is actually a pantheistic view. So, um, now, I, I want you to read this. This was written a long time ago, but it's very interesting. This Bavarian comic, Carl Valentin, 1882 to 1948, so this is old. Quote, I would have wanted to have liked to, but I didn't dare to allow myself to. 
Now that's in a restrained age and an era that we don't hear much about anymore. Victorian England, the 1800s, the early 1900s. When the Bavarian comic Carl Valentin wrote that sentence, man's will was in a different condition than it is today. Although they would have liked to, people at that time didn't dare to do anything that desire called for. Today it is different. Today people can't want what desire demands quickly enough. And no one is bothered by this in the least. This is why human will is in a bad condition today. Instead of the coachman steering the horse, Will is now sitting in the back of the coach making out, not giving the slightest thought to where the horse is going. The only thing that concerns it is how can it possibly have the most fun. That's what the will, the unrestrained will, without the Spirit of God through acting through the heart and mind. That, that's a nice presentation. We wouldn't want anything more... Uh, racy or scary than that but that's just that's just a peep into what the un uh, the unsaved will is capable of doing now i would suggest to you that the will has been like this since the fall of adam and eve in other words there is now no restraining influence no guiding influence on the will since the fall of adam and eve <clears throat> Adam and Eve could choose to do right in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But after choosing to eat the fruit and go against God's command, they no longer had free will of their own. In disobeying God's command, they began to die. I think we could call this human selfishness. Could we do that? Is that a safe statement? God looked down on the earth saw that the wickedness of man was great, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We'll go on to page 6. Jesus describes the condition of this earth at the end time. Matthew 24. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and took them all away. So the unrestrained will, heart, and mind. The, the will is the force. What did we say the will was? The power of control the mind has over its own actions. The unrestrained, no control will, huh? Just does anything and everything. And we're coming up to that day again. Because the psalmist, if you look here in 119, 126... He prophesied, It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Now, has that been completely fulfilled yet? Look, this is a famous quote here, so look at this. Maranatha 179. The time is coming when the law of God is in a special sense to be made void in our land. Of the twin institutions in the Garden of Eden, which one has been made void by law now? Marriage. Marriage. And what's left? The Sabbath. The rulers of our nation will by legislative enactments enforce the Sunday law and thus God's people will be brought into great peril. When our nation in its legislative councils shall enact laws to bind the consciences of men in regard to their religious privileges, 
enforcing Sunday observance and bringing oppressive power to bear against those who keep the seventh-day Sabbath, the law of God will, to all intents and purposes, be made void in our land. It's one of the sentinel events in Scripture and Spirit of Prophecy that we can know. Now, I, I would not wait to get my heart and mind right with God until that occurs because these are events she's describing with incredible 100% precision. They are going to take place. The question is, are you going to be ready for them? That's the key question. So God comes down. You know, remember he came down to visit Abraham to look at Sodom and Gomorrah. He comes down. He came down before the flood to see what's going on. He's coming to investigate. And what are we in today? The investigative pre-advent judgment. He's come down and he's looking to see who's safe to save now. And so now is the day of salvation. It always has been and it must be. Now, if you're not in control of your will, who might you have yielded your will to? Who's vying for the control of your will? Now, go to page 8. When I study this, I do crazy things. This is the way at my Sabbath school class, we just go back and forth. Only you're not able to talk to me because you're not on the speaker, and I'm sorry for that. Look at page 8 in the middle of it where it's in bold type and underline. Now, remember that we're talking about control of the will. Your will is the spring of all your actions. This is from Five Testimonies, page 515. This will, and here's some help, folks, that forms so important a factor in the character of man. Cha-ching, did you hear that? Okay, talking about character. Maybe the mind, the heart, the soul, all of this is wrapped up, the will in the character. I think that's a possible conclusion but hang on to that was at the fall given into control of satan did you realize that at the fall your will our will was given into the control of satan and he has ever since been working in man to will and do of his own pleasure you notice how she's quoting the text (laughs) uh, to will and to do of his good pleasure only satan is doing it and he has been causing utter ruin and misery now, those of you who listen to is it, it's Mark Howard and many others that are dealing with this mysticism and everything that's going on and coming into Christianity, this is the spot where Satan still has access through the tree of knowledge of good and evil right here. The will was given in the control of Satan, and he has ever since been working in man to will and to do his pleasure. And you will do his will at his good pleasure until you die or you're destroyed because it's the unregenerate heart. Remember that wicked, desperate, and deceitful heart out of which all of this terrible stuff springs because the mind has taken these things in through the senses. The imagination works. The mind and the heart consult, and they say, we want Bathsheba. <laughs> and that seems to be the way it works. So, but the infinite sacrifice of God in giving Jesus, his beloved son, 
to become a sacrifice for sin enables him to say, without violating one principle of his government, yield yourself up to me. Give me that will. Take it from the control of Satan and I will take possession of it. Then I can work in you to will and to do of my good pleasure. You see how that's turned around? I mean, this is the avenue of the soul that people are just ignoring to their own eternal peril. When he gives you the mind of Christ, wouldn't you like to have that? You can have that. Your will becomes as his will and your character is transformed to be like Christ's character. This is a one of the great statements from the Spirit of Prophecy that explains in one paragraph what is going on in this world with us, our mind, our heart, and our will. It's just absolutely amazing. Okay, we'll get back to six. All right. Notice that Paul, about just a little more than two-thirds down the page, Ephesians 1, 5, 9, and 11 Paul is making it clear in Ephesians that God has a will and God will make it known to us. Notice, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Remember, God has a will. That's what we're talking. You realize that God has a will. We don't want to forget the one up above. Matthew 6, 9 and 10 is the famous Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Won't that be an amazing day when the will of God moves throughout the universe and everyone's heart beats in gladness to that will and in union with that will because they their mind was transformed and they had a heart transplant. Thy will be done in earth. So God has a will and he wants his will to be done all over the universe, including this earth. And as Paul says, he's having made known unto us the mystery of his will. God has made known unto us the mystery of his will. Who most clearly expressed the will of the Father, Jesus himself. And he says, I didn't come to do my will, but his. And we're going to see Jesus has a will. And who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. It may not look like God is in control, but he works all things after the counsel of his own will. That famous example of Daniel where Gabriel says, I'm sorry I couldn't get here. Michael and I were over there with the king trying to get him not to, you know, do what he was going to do or something. It just opened the curtain a little bit to see God working his will out on this earth ultimately for our behalf. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and God has a plan for you. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. He wants to make you holy. That's his will for you. You notice there's something he's not willing about. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Not that they will, but that's his true intent and his desire from his heart that he wants all to be saved if they would. So the picture of God and Jesus that emerges from Scripture 
a warning to deal with your wicked heart and your wicked mind and transform you is just so wonderful. I've been so blessed just looking over this myself. Um, Jesus had a will, page 7. My meat or my food is to do the will of him that sent me. I can of mine own self do nothing when my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of the Father. If Jesus had not followed the will of his Father, he would have stood up in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, this is worthless, I'm out of here. But he knew what the will of his Father was. And they had prearranged it way back in eternity as an antidote to the sin problem. And he says, Lord, I mean, Jesus could not see beyond the grave in his human heart and soul. But he relied on God and the will of the Father and was victorious. So he knew what the will of the Father was. Well, let's look at Solomon. We're pulling the human will of the heart and the mind together. Look at the verse again under G. Thou, Solomon, my son, know that the God of thy father, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. Now, what do we learn from this? A perfect heart and a willing mind are necessary. It takes both. A new heart and a new spirit. The terms appear to be somewhat interchangeable because we, we see spirit interjected here instead of mind. Or something. So don't get hung up on the words, but know you need something new. That is incredibly important. For it is to become a perfect heart and a willing mind. So, but number four, for one to serve God with a perfect heart and mind, you must be what? If you just sit passively there, will it happen? It's not going to happen. People are wanting to be saved. They are hoping to be saved, but they have done nothing. Their heart and mind has not roused them to what they need to do, and the will act, and they'll be lost while hoping to be saved. I mean, it's, uh, it's a scary thing. Um, now, notice what happened in Matthew 21. You, you know the story very well. A certain man had two sons, and he says, Boys, come here. I need you to go work in the vineyard. And the first one says, No way. But then he thought about it later, and he went. And the, the second one says, Oh, yes, Father. And he never went. So the big question in verse 31, whether of the two of them did the will of his father? Whether of the two of them. And of course, the Pharisees got caught up listening to this story, you know. And they says, well, of course, the first one did. You know, he, he refused to go and then he finally went. They were in essence condemning themselves. Look at what she says here in Review and Herald. By these two sons, Christ represented the obedient and the disobedient. So, when you do the will of someone, you're either obeying them, whether it's God or Satan, or disobeying them. So, it has the will operates with obedience. You see the connection there. 
The son who refused to obey the command, saying, I will not, represented those living in open sin, no profession of piety, but many of those afterwards repented and went. When the gospel came to them and the message of John the Baptist, repent, they repented and confessed their sins. So, um, you know, that we're trying to connect the will in with this heart and mind thing. And so the will, any of you had a strong will child? It's pretty exciting. <laughs> Fortunately, I found several books to read about, and there's things you, it would make one of them so upset. I know what you're doing. I says, well, you have a choice. <laughs> yes, oh, it was terrible. Uh, we're through that. Um, let's see what time we have left here. Ooh, 10 minutes. Right. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the will a little bit more on page 8. Notice where it says the governing power in the nature of man. Let's figure out how the will fits in this. The will is the governing power in the nature of man bringing all the other faculties under its sway. So once the heart and the mind have decided what to do and the will takes over, something's going to happen. The will is not the taste or the inclination, but it is the deciding power which works in the children of men unto obedience or disobedience. So you're going to do an act. Once the will is determined, you're either going to do something right or wrong, good or bad, or for God or for Satan. I mean, the will will do that. And I have seen inmates in county jails who are as down on their luck, facing 40 years and whatever, and they will just sit there and defy the doctor, his medicine, the nurse, the treatment, the county who made the laws, and God himself, and they will refuse. And, and they have the right to, to do that. But, they, I mean, they're, a, they're a <laughs> one party of one that can just refuse to do any single thing under the world. And that's exactly what the will can do. I mean, it's just totally amazing. So I'm suggesting, it's not written in here, the mind and the heart inform the will. Will you accept that? I think that seems to give a reason for why the mind and the heart are there because it informs the will. Everything depends on its right action. The tempted one needs to understand the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision of choice. The will is the power of decision and choice. And it's based on information, okay? I guess people make choices without any input, huh? Do you suppose? <laughs> but uh, usually there's input. Everything depends on the right action of the will. Desires for good and purity are right as far as they go, but if we stop there, they avail nothing. Here's what I told you a minute ago. Many will go down to ruin while hoping and desiring to overcome their evil propensities. They do not yield the will to God. They do not choose to serve. So even if the will does not choose to do something, in the end, the will has made a choice and a decision. So uh, we're coming down to the end. Let's get over to the uh, page 9. 
I want to talk about obedience here for a moment. How does this fit in? We've looked at it some already. Isaiah 1 is probably as good a description of the Laodicean condition as we mentioned just a few minutes ago. And if it isn't, I don't know what else it's describing. But when you get down through all the terrible things Israel had done in rejecting and being rebellious against the Lord, then these famous passages come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There's the offer of the new heart and the transformation of the mind. And look at this. This is what this whole sermon lecture revolves on. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. Your senses have detected information. The mind informs the heart. The renewed heart says, I want to do what Jesus says, and you become, your will becomes, takes an obedient turn. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Notice the positive and negative again. It's all through Scripture. So we sing, he's able, he's able, I know he's able, I know my Lord is able to carry me through. I hope that's not just an empty song because he is able to give you a heart transplant and a transformed mind. And what do we call a new heart and a transformed mind? That's one thing. And as a result of conversion, we get a seal and a robe, which stands for a new character, Jesus Christ. So in the end, we're going to close with on page 10 where it says God's converting power. This is a new quote I had never seen before. God wants his converting power to come on this occasion. There are some that come to our meetings. They will sit through all the meetings. They have borne a few words of testimony now and then. Then they have gone home and done exactly, just exactly, if not worse than before. You know, people, well, we have these revivals. I'm sick of the preacher calling us down because then when we go home, we do worse than we did before. You've heard that. Why? Because they had not the new heart. Now, she's going to define for you. Here's the take-home thing. What is the new heart? It is the new mind. What is the mind? It is the will. Where is your will? Now, aren't you glad you waited till the end to find out how this all comes together? What is the new heart? It is the new mind. What is the mind? It is the will. Where is your will? It is either on Satan's side or Christ's side. Now it is up to you. Will you put your will today on Christ's side of the question? That is the new heart. It is the new will, a new mind. So all things become new. So whatever components of the heart and the mind and the will are, they can all be exchanged and he can give you a complete new new experience. So as we face the question in closing, are you willing? We do not have to stay Laodicean. We can reach out and he will raise us up to his level. We will not pull him down to this miserable existence here. 
we will raise. He will raise us up. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we've tried to understand this mystery of God, which we find in Jesus Christ, who loved us, gave himself for us, and he wants to give us a new heart, a new mind, that our will may be hid with Christ in God. Father, this is our fervent prayer. As we go forth in whatever evangelistic endeavor or witnessing endeavor there is to be, that others will see our good works and glorify your name in heaven. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.